Hi, I'm Lisa McKee, Marketing Director, Asia-Pacific, O&M Halyard, and you're listening to the Halyard Education Podcast Series. In this episode, we're turning our attention to protecting healthcare workers in a COVID environment. How are they getting infected whilst wearing PPE? What kind of PPE do healthcare workers have access to? And what needs to change to reduce transmission? To discuss these questions and more, I'm co-hosting today with Ty Bouvier, Marketing Manager for PPE, Asia-Pacific at O&M Halyard. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for having me. We certainly have some impressive guests here today. Indeed we do, Ty. Today we're joined by Professor Mary Louise McClaws, an epidemiologist from the University of New South Wales, and Dr Kath Murphy, an infection prevention expert. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Lovely to be Thank you, Lisa. Mary Louise, as an epidemiologist, can you share a little around what your field, and in particular what your role, involves in this COVID environment? Uh, look, there are many different types of epidemiologists, and my work for the last um, three decades has focused on research and capacity building and patient safety uh, related to healthcare infections and uh, healthcare worker safety. During um, the pre-influenza uh, pandemic influenza, I was appointed by the chief uh, medical officer and his panel to evaluate the evidence that the pandemic influenza infection control for healthcare worker guidelines was actually evidence-based. And I now currently work with the World Health Organization Health Emergencies Program Expert Group for Infection Prevention and Control for COVID. Thank you, Mary Louise. And Kath, what about yourself? Can you tell us a bit about your experience and how you ended up becoming an expert in infection prevention? Thank you, Lisa. My background has been 33 years specialising in infection control and prevention, and I've worked at and with several of the world's leading infection control agencies and organisations over that period, including the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta, the World Health Organization as a consultant during SARS, and as a leader and president of APIC, and as a member of various infection control committees of the Australian Commission on Safety and Quality in Healthcare. So what I've tried to do in my career is guide clinical practice and behaviours by ensuring that the systems offer optimal safety for patients, for healthcare staff, and more recently for the broader public communities. My mission and what drives me is really to add value to the mechanisms and systems that are in place that are designed to optimise safe, high-quality care for patients and to reduce the risks for healthcare workers. Mary Louise, you're firmly in the COVID-19 space right now. Can you tell us how the pandemic has impacted healthcare worker safety? Healthcare workers are pivotal to continued service delivery. And the World Health Organization has an ethical framework that's central to health services and the delivery of care and for COVID patients. But this must never place the clinical staff and the care staff at risk. Their safety must always be a priority. There does remain important gaps in our knowledge around infection prevention and control that continue 
to include important things still now about infectious dose. Um, and this will help us to understand the importance of airborne spread, for example, uh, because droplet nuclei are a thousandth of the size of droplets. And the importance of this as a transmission mode has not yet been established. Uh, we also don't really understand the importance of direct uh, transmission versus indirect transmission from contaminated high touch surfaces. So in the absence of high level research around these important infection prevention and control related um, unknowns, it's a challenge to develop good uh, evidence-based guidelines. So WHO develop and update guidelines for COVID-19 as evidence becomes available. Uh, because the evidence is developed from rapid and often less well-developed or designed studies, the expert group has to balance the risks and the benefits of these changing knowledge uh, to put them into the guidelines. How are guidelines developed when there are so many unknowns? So in February of this year, uh, 2020, the World Health Organization held its first roadmap for COVID meeting. And there were 400 of us, and we represented nine themes, epidemiology, infection control, therapeutics, um, vaccination, social science, ethics, zoonology, etc. And we were presented with many unknowns and we were asked within our groups to prioritize the unknowns for rapid um, research focus. We were then updated as a group on beginning of July. And across these nine themes, it became apparent during this uh, July meeting that we had gained a lot of knowledge, but at the same time, we gained a lot of unknowns and uh, messaging to the public and healthcare workers must be consistent to say, we don't know everything. The right thing to do will change as our knowledge improves and we update regularly. Now, this is very difficult rhetoric, uh, particularly for the public and healthcare workers to hear because they must understand um, that this doesn't mean that we're going to place them at risk now, but that we are doing our level best with very imperfect information. Uh, the group that uh, I'm on focuses on healthcare worker safety and the World Health Organization appreciates that other themes such as epidemiology, uh, therapeutics, uh, the virology group have important crossovers for us to include uh, and embellish our knowledge so that infection prevention and control guidelines can um, include uh, social sciences and important uh, understanding for adaptive behavior. And this has never been more important than right now during a pandemic. And Kath, what challenges are you hearing from healthcare workers and infection prevention managers on the front line as they strive to protect their staff? Ty, we're currently several months into the COVID-19 pandemic. And I understand and appreciate that healthcare workers are continuing to operate from a point of fatigue, likely discomfort and 
understandably, fear. There are still many unanswered questions and debate regarding occupational COVID-19 transmission is rampant amongst healthcare workers. That uncertainty and the inevitable waning of healthcare worker resilience very much concern me as healthcare workers need to be laser focused when they're considering risk and when they're adopting recommended infection control strategies and measures. I suspect that in those organisations that have them, that infection control teams are the first points of call. And I imagine that the credibility of those infection control teams is often challenged by competing misinformation and perhaps even conflicting advice from non-expert individuals and agencies. Kath, as governments and hospital groups scramble to secure adequate mask supplies, which standards should they be following when selecting products and why? Lisa, contrary to popular opinion, mask standards exist really for one key reason, and that is to protect the users who wear them. For masks, I believe that the USA's ASTM, which was formerly the American Society for Testing and Materials standard is often the go-to standard, especially in countries that don't have their own standard. So that would be places like Japan, India and Singapore, for example. I recommend that healthcare workers identify and follow your local country standards. And if you can't find products that meet those, then review those international standards to determine whether they provide at least the same level of protection for your staff. I would also recommend that healthcare workers never assume that a mask does the job. For example, assuming that a filtering face piece respirator, or an FFR, claiming compliance as a KN95 respirator affords sufficient exhalation resistance inhalation resistance and particulate filtration efficiency may in fact be poorly designed, fraudulent or even counterfeit. And I know that Australia's Therapeutic Goods Administration is currently focusing on this very issue. Personally, I would feel safest in a mask that complied with and is certified against the requirements of the United States NIOSH standard, the EN standard and the relevant standards Australia and New Zealand standard. But along with masks come the added important human factors of correctly wearing a mask. We must never forget that even if a mask meets the highest of standards, its protective ability is really dependent upon how the healthcare worker wears it and it must be worn correctly at all times. So, Kath, if you could rewrite the rule book, what would you change? A very interesting question, Lisa. Rather than changing the practice, what I believe we need to do is introduce a mandate that every worker in a hospital, not just the clinicians, but everybody, undertakes annual fit testing plus competency testing in how to select the appropriate personal protective equipment how to don and doff that PPE, and that includes filtering face piece respirators or N95s. Mary Louise, do you believe the current respirator standards have kept up with protection requirements in this new pandemic landscape? Filtration standards 
are um, penultimately important, but there are other issues around respirators that must be considered. Um, and these are uh, comfort and fit. If a mask fogs up glasses or becomes hot, it's unlikely the healthcare worker can work for any length of time. And in Australia, healthcare workers are allowed or are expected to wear uh, a respirator for four hours straight, which can be very hard work uh, without touching it and without getting distracted. So comfort, uh, being cool and easy to fit check uh, must be uh, included in standards as well. If we are going to expect our healthcare workers to wear a respirator for up to four hours, uh, the masks need to be very comfortable. But I think that uh, what we should be looking at is an uninterrupted supply chain of respirators rather than expecting healthcare workers to keep a mask on even when they're not necessarily needing it for the um, protection of that supply chain uh, and when they're only given a couple of masks a day to wear. Mary Louise, you've been involved in seven WHO guidelines, of which two were in relation to infection control prevention for healthcare workers, including the WHO advice on the use of masks in the context of COVID-19, interim guidance June 5th, 2020. What are the latest WHO mask-wearing guidelines for healthcare workers? WHO require respirators to be worn with eye protection. The guidelines don't recommend reuse or decontamination for reuse. The difference between the USA CDC uh, guidelines and the WHO guideline is that CDC requires respirators to be used with all COVID um, patient care, regardless of whether an aerosol generating procedure is being performed or expected to be performed. Like WHO guidelines, the Australian guidelines require health workers to wear a surgical mask with eye protection for the routine care of COVID patients. There are KN95 masks that are common in India, Japan, Asia, the Pacific, but these aren't used by healthcare workers in Australia because they haven't yet been approved by the Australian and New Zealand standards. Mary Louise, you mention off-label use such as placing respirators in plastic bags. Could you tell me a little more around what appears to be a necessity for that in some markets? During a pandemic, the authorities worry about a supply chain. And this goes to the very heart of the WHO Global Pandemic uh, Preparedness Monitoring Board that put out a requirement to shake the world up last year that we were going to enter a pandemic. And this was long before um, COVID-19 had appeared in China. And it is beholden to particularly the Western world to prepare a supply chain that keeps healthcare workers safe, that they never have to put their P2 mask in a Ziploc bag so that they uh, reuse it. WHO um, discussed um, the idea of reuse um, at one stage because we discussed many things before making a decision. 
Uh, and it was based on the experience that I witnessed and Kath would have witnessed as well during SARS 2003, that because the supply chain of P2s were was um, considered to be limited, uh, healthcare workers were required to have a paper bag with their name on it. It was um, pinned up in the foyer of a the hospital that I was helping to identify how healthcare workers acquired um, SARS. In the morning, they'd come and put their P2 on that they had worn the day before. Um, to try to keep it clean, they put a surgical mask over the top of that. So you can imagine the heat and the CO2 buildup, um, the uh, the need for wanting to, to touch it. But apart from that, putting your mask into a bag, a Ziploc bag or a paper bag so you can reuse it, places the healthcare worker at risk because the outside of that mask may be contaminated um, with uh, um, SARS-CoV-2 particles. And uh, you are taking the, the mask in and out of that bag, and you better be very careful to put that mask on with the inside of the mask facing uh, your, your nose and your mouth. Uh, your, your hands must be very careful not to touch the inside of the mask to contaminate it. And it just increases the risk for healthcare workers to get uh, COVID-19. And my analysis of how uh, 63 healthcare workers at the SARS-designated hospital acquired uh, SARS uh, was um, potentially one of the reasons that they had to reuse uh, their mask apart from um, PPE fatigue. But it's very dangerous and uh, one has to wonder whether a clean surgical mask uh, couldn't be uh, safer with a face shield, but there's no scientific evidence to say that. So at the moment, the American healthcare workers are having to reuse their mask. And I feel very sorry for them because it's not, not best practice. And America is known for setting the standards for best practice. So I, I hope that they get their supply chain back in order. Kath, as an infection prevention specialist, what do you see as the key contributor to frontline workers acquiring COVID-19? I'm not sure if there's one key contributor, but what I have learned in my time is that if infection control advice is unclear, ambiguous, or if it conflicts with previous advice or alternative advice, it will be challenged. Also, if healthcare workers are not competent in either assessing the risks that are associated with different aspects of care, or if they can't properly select, don, use, remove, and importantly, dispose of personal protective equipment and apparel, they are also likely to be at risk of infection. What we know is that COVID-19 is indiscriminate in who it infects. It appears to be relatively easily transmitted in healthcare settings, and it also seems to be very clever in recognising lapses in concentration and in infection control competence. So in the absence of a vaccine, and now with more than 30 million infected patients and people worldwide, 
I believe that the solution to protecting healthcare workers and patients requires collective efforts and shared viewpoints. For many years, I've described the solution to infection prevention and reducing transmission with an analogy. It's my belief that infection prevention is actually like a table needing four legs to hold it up. In my mind, those legs are clinical behaviour, well-written evidence-based policies that are endorsed by credible professional organisations, researchers who provide quality scientific guidance that informs practice recommendations, and finally, manufacturers who design, produce and distribute quality product. So each of those four legs is required and the strength of the table is dependent on all the others and without each other, there's no stability and in fact, there's no strength. Mary Louise, as an epidemiologist, specifically consulting on the SARS outbreak, what role do masks play in safety breaches, potentially exacerbating healthcare worker infection rates? When I was tasked with finding out why and how healthcare workers acquired SARS in 2003, I found two key areas that contributed to their risks. That was intubating a patient before uh, masking up themselves uh, because healthcare workers were focused on saving another person's life. And once this practice stopped, the next most common factor for risk of acquiring SARS was PPE fatigue. During SARS, the supply of respirator masks uh, was potentially not optimal. So healthcare workers had to extend the use and reuse their masks. In other words, they had to wear them for the whole um, clinical um, hours they, they were on the ward. It was covered with a surgical mask to keep it clean. Um, but this isn't optimal because the average shift in a full PPE is eight hours on a ward or even longer. And working in an environment of an unknown pathogen, an unknown uh, cause of spread, um, made healthcare workers anxious. You need healthcare workers to make the very best clinical decisions for the patient. And in a state of anxiety, it doesn't help, particularly with uncomfortable PPE, because the slightest thing can be annoying and become a distraction that can be very dangerous to their own health. This is why an infection prevention and control coach uh, was placed on the ward to ensure that the healthcare worker focused on their clinical decisions while the infection prevention and control matters were assisted by that coach who would stop the healthcare worker from being distracted and touch their mask. Given current limited access for many facilities to uh, gain N95 masks, what are your thoughts on reuse? COVID-19, Ebola, pandemic influenza, they all remind us that the supply and access to clean and appropriate mask type is key to keeping our healthcare workers safe and feeling that they are also important and that their safety as is as important as the patients they are caring for, particularly with a novel infection. Um, we must never allow the idea of decontaminating masks and other PPE to become the center of our uh, scientific focus. Instead, the focus has to be on expecting and planning, particularly planning for a continuous supply 
chain that's uninterrupted um, and the design that's comfortable and appropriate for the task. And to date, has the WHO addressed the issue of universal mask use? The June 5 WHO update on mask use included a recommendation for hospitals to consider when universal mask use should be considered in hospitals. And we uh, should be responsive to the risk to the healthcare worker from hospital visitors and patients, particularly when the community spread becomes high and instigate universal mask use within the healthcare facilities, but not wait too long for that universal mask use to be put in place. This is interesting because I've had a bit of experience just with family members in and out of hospital at the moment. And to my knowledge, there was universal mask use because in the facilities I've been to, it's compulsory for all visitors, every healthcare worker. Is it not that way already or is it just some hospitals or? We in New South Wales have now a green, amber, red where we require um, visitors to wear a mask or healthcare workers to don a mask universally, but it is not uh, required in New South Wales. So certain facilities in New South Wales are abiding by that WHO guideline and others are not because it's not yet mandatory in New South Wales? If you're seeing it in a facility already, they may assume that they're at the amber level, but it is not a universal requirement. Well, the, th- the interesting thing, isn't it, you know, that this is about conflicting recommendations, which causes confusion. So, you know, ideally one would like to think that there's national consistency, irrespective of whether it's a public sector health service organisation or whether it's private. And so you've, you may have healthcare workers that work part-time in different sectors and, you know, you have cross-border healthcare workers who may live in one jurisdiction and work in another. And where there's, where there's this conflict, how can we guarantee safe, reliable, consistent clinical healthcare worker behaviours? We absolutely can't. What we often do, Kath, is wait for when a healthcare worker gets infected and then we react. We are not preemptive in our approach. In the SARS hospital that I uh, was working for to look at how and why, uh, they were very preemptive. So they assumed it was aerosol um, and they uh, assumed everybody had to wear a mask, even if they weren't caring for an infected COVID patient, but a Um, one that was being rehabilitated, so those step-down wards. So it was a very different approach, and um, I agree. It can be very difficult. It can be difficult to keep up with um, the requirements, but it's very much, I think, around protecting the supply chain and waiting for a disaster to then respond. And can I ask, as we see such variability in execution of those new WHO guidelines in Australia, have we seen that variability throughout Asia-Pacific, to your knowledge? Do you think some countries have done a more comprehensive job than others on executing to full universal mask use? That's a very hard question to answer because my WHO colleagues um, provide their 
impression and requirements, um, whether or not they get practiced in situ is another thing. But I think that one of the barriers in Australia is that each state and territory uh, expert panel believes they have the ability to run meta-analyses and systematic reviews constantly and at the level of competency that um, the WHO expert group has. I mean, I don't run these. WHO has uh, specific groups to do it because it's huge. I was I was um, part of a meta-analysis and it was done in three weeks and that was at warp speed. And so in Australia, they can't possibly do that in three weeks. And so I think that there's an assumption that um, what they're doing is best practice and it certainly is in most cases, but it's disconcerting to see sometimes a, a lag in um, instituting something like universal mask use in hospitals. It's as if they sometimes think that the WHO guideline is for uh, developing nations rather than developed ones. Halyard has a proud history of partnering our innovative clinical products with in-service training, customer support, clinical research and education to enable healthcare workers to remain at the forefront of best practice and industry trends. If you are an existing Halyard customer, visit halyardeducationfoundation.com.au and register to access our online education. If you have any questions about Halyard's innovative product line, please contact our customer care team or your Halyard representative. Mary Louise, we're hearing how poor airflow and different sized particles impact the spread of coronavirus. Can you take us through that and the role of eye protection? ACE2 receptor sites are also found in the eye. And the WHO updated mask and eye protection guideline was based on a large amount of evidence that was of varying quality uh, and because researchers can't run perfectly designed studies during pandemic. And the review also included evidence about airflow, which was given a renewed focus in this latest guideline for hospitals and healthcare facilities, as not all facilities in all countries have been able to meet airflow standards during a pandemic. And that standard is 40 to 80 litres per second per patient, so it's quite high. Airflow is vitally important in preventing airborne spread and therefore aerosolized particles going into the eye. Droplet transmission is still considered to be um, the, mo the main uh, transmission mode in hospitals, but there has been an agreement um, by the expert group that opportunistic airborne spread indoors uh, is now an, Im an important transmission mode and is now overtly acknowledged in the new guidelines. We have known, and my own research is included in this body of knowledge, that 
exhaled particles from patients with a range of viral infections are not just exhaled in a plume of single size particles. Influenza particles are um, not exhaled in just droplet nuclei, that's that is the very smallest ones. But patients exhaled a range of droplet nuclei and droplet sized particles. The same is true for viruses that are considered to be spread by droplet um, sized particles in that they exhale both sized particles. So transmission may occur with just one sized particle. How much do we know about airborne transmission? The virus may favour the circumstances for droplet or airborne, but we need to consider when uh, either spread is maximised and certainly in wards and indoor venues where there's very little airflow that uh, amplifies the opportunity for airborne spread. Based on epidemiological patterns, we are mindful that the majority of spread of COVID is by droplets, but that when airflow is poor, uh, it favours a smaller particle size spread. Are there any recent studies on the implications of poor airflow? A recent paper on outbreak of COVID-19 on a bus indicated that poor airflow at less than three litres per second per passenger facilitated that spread to the other end of the bus and on the opposite side of the bus. There was a restaurant outbreak in China that was assigned as a possible aerosol spread and that that was possibly facilitated by poor air change uh, per hour. So someone at the other side of the restaurant acquired the virus. But remember, aerosolized particles are around a thousandth of the size of a droplet. And without knowing what the infectious dose is, poor fresh air change and poor airflow requires us to have eye protection to reduce the likelihood of airborne spread. Kath, you also consulted with the WHO during the SARS response in 2003. What are some of the findings for improving healthcare worker safety that you witnessed that could be applied here and now? Lisa, I think there's lots that we could consider and possibly apply. So I say that understanding that infection prevention teams and healthcare workers, particularly nurses, are currently under a great deal of pressure, as they were in SARS, the first stop, the hands-on clinical care providers. By now, I suspect that most are exhausted and unfortunately there doesn't seem to be any solution in sight immediately. So during SARS, in similar circumstances, I observed healthcare workers implementing great workarounds and new solutions And many of them were simple, and I hope that they can inspire application or adoption now. So let me tell you about them. One of the first I saw were nursing workforces allocated into teams or platoons. So we had team A, team B, C or D, and each team was allocated a specific rotation of shifts and no one crossed teams. 
So it meant that if anyone in any team showed even the minor sign of illness, only 25% of the staff were implicated and precautionarily isolated rather than having to quarantine whole workforces. So that was a tremendous approach that meant we could keep up nursing workforces. So another thing that I observed and loved immediately was seeing senior clinicians, some of them who weren't zealots for infection control and prevention, but what they did was when they applied PPE, they used mirrors specifically to check the seal of their face masks before they entered patient areas or rooms. And that was really simple. It was not expensive and it could be easily implemented. And in some hospitals, as Mary Lou's told us, I also observed the implementation of isolation buddy systems or ward-based champions who were always available to remind people what to do in real time, but also to intervene where they could to prevent someone from breaking the system of prevention that they were uh, involved in at a particular time. So they could make a, a wild hand gesticulating movement outside of a a room to stop a healthcare worker who may have been about to touch their eyes or adjust their mask. I think that there's something that healthcare workers can do individually and that is again simple but what it is is that if healthcare workers plan the direct care that they're likely to give before they enter the patient's room then the planning enables them to maximise their time in that room. So it can minimise the duration of face-to-face contact and in doing that, hopefully reduce potential exposure time. What I do know is that healthcare workers are very innovative and I'm sure when we come through to the other side of COVID-19, which we will, there will be some great new observations and hopefully innovations that will take us further into the future. And Kath, I'll remind you that in Hong Kong during SARS, we saw um, eye protection and negative air pressure rooms with a HEPA filter uh, were uh, instigated. And I'll remind you that during SARS, the SARS um, designated hospital Uh, repurposed every single ward. Yes, most of them didn't have an anti-room, but repurposed them as a negative air pressure room in 72 hours. And the CEO uh, got the environmental engineers to do that. So it can be done. Kath, having worked extensively in infection control for over 30 years, you would have no doubt witnessed a lot of clinical practice pitfalls that contribute to the spread of infection. Can you share with us what some of these seemingly innocent practices are and how they contribute to the spread of infection? As you've suggested, occupational transmission risks of SARS-CoV-2 from patients to healthcare workers is a highly relevant issue. We know that recent reports from Victoria suggest around 15% of healthcare workers have been occupationally exposed. There are a few very interesting recent infection control related publications that have captivated me. Um, The first is a Norwegian study by Basso and colleagues 
where they reviewed transmission of infection from a symptomatic patient with COVID-19 to 60 healthcare workers who were exposed for periods between two minutes but no more than 15 minutes or during aerosol-generating procedures. The participants had more than 106 unique high-risk contacts, yet none of them tested positive for SARS-CoV-2 RNA or developed antibodies. So it suggested adhering to just basic infection control measures may be protective. So my general observations are that stressed or tired healthcare workers lack the clarity required for proper assessment of infection risk. Inadvertently, they may miss a risk or a step and potentially be exposed. I actually did this myself during the SARS 2003 outbreak, ironically, in a hospital in Wuhan in China. It was a very salient wake-up call for me. The other thing that concerns me is that Healthcare workers, particularly nurses, are not very good at putting themselves before patients. They are problem solvers and rescuers, and I believe that we have needed to re-message infection control during COVID-19 so that healthcare workers accept that it is okay, in fact it's critical, that they stop and take a few seconds or minutes to don their PPE properly before they have patient contact even in the most emergent of events. Wearing PPE is not comfortable, nor is it ever glamorous. I've observed so many occasions where PPE wearers repeatedly adjust their PPE, perhaps from their glasses fogging or their mask slipping. Whatever it is, it needs to be avoided, prevented and ignored as we know that if you place your hands near your face, your eyes or your mask after they've possibly been in contact with a contaminated surface, it's an easy way to breach the supposed barrier that the PPE provides. And what role do mask or PPE donning and doffing techniques play in infection? Lisa, mask donning and doffing habits. Well, healthcare workers must be able to demonstrate competence in donning and disposing of PPE. I think that we need to relook at the frequency of training for donning and doffing. And as you know, I believe it should be mandatory for anyone who's working in a hospital. And fit testing or fit checking, how important is an N95 fit test in reducing infection spread? Well, based on my experience during SARS and then subsequently working in Australian clinical settings, We've not done fit testing well at all. So healthcare workers always need to know what mask, what brand and what size they need to wear and they need that knowledge before a pandemic hits. So fit testing is considered inconvenient and it's not always recognised. It should be assessed annually and I know recently there's been lots of online chatter around fit testing challenges. So in some places, only fit checking was taking place. I I find it as a healthcare worker myself incredible. You know, we do mandatory annual uh, CPR training and competency testing, and we can't practice in many hospitals until we've done that. Yet it's assumed we, in the most risky of times, are competent in mask wearing. 
there really is just too much variability in the fit testing process and fit testing should be mandatory and it should be standardised. Kath, when PPE resources become scarce, we hear it's common to restrict access to these products, especially masks. How do these types of practices impact healthcare workers? So I did make some recommendations in a a short article that I published in 2006 around the need to have a good way to control PPE distribution at the ward level. So there's a couple of principles that I think people should adhere to and they are healthcare workers always need easy access to PPE. It shouldn't be held under lock and key and there have to be systems and methods worked out so that healthcare workers can always access that PPE easily and immediately. So perhaps we need some new administrative controls and healthcare workers need to know and understand that they can access PPE and use it without compromising care and also we could look at ways to minimise exposure at the bedside. I think all of it leads me to realise that there are opportunities to improve how we streamline the provision of clinical care. Mary Louise, what are your thoughts on restricting mask access to healthcare workers? In the past, um, I was asked to provide support for the Australian pandemic guidelines. And at the time, uh, there were statistical modellers engaged by the government to establish the number of masks and other PPE that would be needed. The talk about restricting respirators uh, per healthcare worker should never be entertained. And during the pandemic influenza preparedness, I was told that healthcare workers would uh, have a limited number of respirators provided to them. It's unethical and it's akin to suggesting that a bushfire fighter entering a blaze without being fully equipped it must not be entertained. Neither should the number of respirators um, be restricted. Healthcare workers don't use them willy-nilly. They don't use them with disrespect. As of June 11th, there have been over 12,000 healthcare workers with occupationally acquired COVID infections, of whom sadly 171 have died in countries across Asia Pacific. There should be zero cases of healthcare workers with occupationally acquired COVID. They should never be allowed to work without sufficient PPE. And Kath, what about your perspective when healthcare workers are faced with extreme PPE shortages? What should they do? Lisa, my wish is that Healthcare workers are always able to secure high quality, affordable PPE. We need to be supporting healthcare workers to get the very best, even if that requires us to lobby government or other key stakeholders, because we should never, ever settle for second best. Mary Louise, how do you think COVID-19 has changed the role of epidemiologists in infection prevention and occupational healthcare worker safety? I think that epidemiologists have um, always assisted infection prevention and control. 
We've always been a hand in glove with ICPs um, and everything that they've tried to do to keep patients safe, visitors safe, and of course themselves safe. Uh, but I think that uh, COVID-19 has um, refreshed uh, the image of uh, epidemiologists. I mean, uh, certainly people in um, Africa uh, and um, Korea and China understood very well the role of epidemiologists during uh, Ebola, MERS and SARS. Uh, it's just the rest of the Western world didn't really understand what we did. They only ever saw us in the occasional dorky movie. Um, but epidemiologists are, um, I guess, uh, the, the pin between infection prevention and control, social sciences, engineers, a wide built environment, expertise, uh, and we bring it together to try to identify where most risks are for healthcare workers and patients um, because um, observations on the ward is not always um, the, the answer and it does take quite some uh, consideration with uh, analysis and, um, and interpretation. But epidemiologists never work alone. They always work uh, with infection prevention and control experts. Um, I think we think we're infection prevention and control practitioners, <laughs> but Kath would remind us that we are not, um, but we are, um, we are an important uh, partner in infection prevention and control. Over your time as an epidemiologist, could you comment on how healthcare worker safety has improved? I think when I first started in the 80s, um, healthcare workers were very uh, laissez-faire about their safety um, and uh, sadly were acquiring uh, hepatitis, uh, particularly as our um, migrant population increased and as they also increased their work out into the rest of the world uh, working for NGOs um, and they had never thought of uh, protecting themselves with vaccination. Uh, the vaccination rates for influenza were uh, appallingly low because they are a group that care about everybody else's safety and they leave their own safety uh, needs behind. And fortunately, there have been very good policies now that have come out that require them to think about their own safety uh, before they rush in uh, to look after everybody else's safety. I think it's, I think um, HIV um, entered um, the, uh, the arena uh, with uh, universal precautions that um, and spilt over to uh, looking after themselves uh, for any other infectious disease or toxin uh, that they may be exposed to. Uh, so it has come a very long way uh, and there's a constant um, amplifier that helps them to remember their risk. So if it wasn't uh, Ebola a long time ago, so Ebola's been around for a very long time, it was um, HIV. If it wasn't HIV, it was hepatitis. If it wasn't that, it was pandemic influenza. Then it was SARS and now it's COVID-19. So 
it has changed a lot and hopefully we will always keep uh, the safety of healthcare workers as our focus as well as the care for the patients as well. Uh, but without safe um, and loved healthcare workers, there will be no health service delivery uh, because um, no parent in their right mind would want to encourage um, their child going to nursing or medicine or allied healthcare if they thought they were placing them at risk of um, their life um, or their longevity. And Kath, what can we learn from COVID-19 and past infectious disease outbreaks to help us manage them more effectively today and into the future? Lisa, as this podcast has demonstrated, we're all in this together and we all have to do our best. I think even when this is over, there has to be a new normal and we need to be open to change. I've learned a lot from what healthcare workers have done in the past and I think that infectious diseases can turn clinical practice on its head very quickly. I'll give you a good example. In the early 1980s, I was taught in nursing school that we should never wear gloves as they would make our patients feel like lepers. Oddly, I was also taught to recap used needles and syringes. I can only imagine what I might have been exposed to in those early years. However, the emergence of HIV and increasing awareness of bloodborne pathogens flipped both of those recommendations, and instead they soon became evidence of very poor infection control practices. Who would have thought that at the time? So if we think about today... I believe that there's always at least one good thing coming from an outbreak because outbreaks provide us with a very rich pasture of opportunities where our practices get tested and where new knowledge often emerges. In the midst of the chaos of any outbreak, I would strongly encourage people to stop and take stock, to think about what they are doing and why they're doing it. Some of the best advancements that we've seen in infection prevention and control have come from retrospectively reviewing data collected during outbreaks. SARS 2003 was a great example of that for me. During this current pandemic, we are seeing urgent real-time calls for agencies such as WHO to rethink the transmission routes of COVID-19. Is it droplet or is it airborne? Is it a bit of both or is it something different? Is it us who haven't yet realised that there may be routes of transmission new and different from any that we've had in the past? So please, when we get to the end of this outbreak, let's really think critically and make sure that participants get to debrief and share their experiences and their findings because this is often when some of our best thinking can occur. And with that thinking comes the new responsibility of preparedness. Despite SARS, avian influenza and MERS, we were in no way ready for COVID-19. I think we could have done a whole lot more to be ready and I wonder how different our world today may have then been. So to prepare yourself for the future, please get your pandemic planning organised Know what mask you need before the next crisis hits 
know what size of N95 you need and get fit tested. Most importantly, never stop questioning. Well, Ty, what an enormous amount of information presented and shared with us today. I really liked the four tables, the four legs to hold up the Mm -hmm. table and the fact that really there's no single um, infection prevention element that will stop this issue. It's a multitude of things, but four being clinicians must behave in an appropriate fashion in terms of how they use their protective Mm -hmm. equipment. Mm -hmm. Secondly, policies written and endorsed by professional credible bodies need to be evaluated and reconsidered in light of changes in what we're seeing occur in the infection of COVID-19. Thirdly, We need to continue to engage researchers to provide quality scientific guidance, particularly as this disease changes and modifies. And fourthly, manufacturers need to do everything that they can do to enhance education and design and modify products to provide the right protection. So it's that holistic approach of four different elements from four different places to ensure that infection prevention has the best chance of achieving the right kind of outcome protecting healthcare workers. One of the key takeaways for me, Lisa, is where Kath touched on healthcare workers not being fantastic at putting themselves before patients. I think it's a really nice reminder for healthcare workers to take a moment to think about their own PPE protection before they walk in and look after the patients. Absolutely, Ty. Well, thank you for joining us for this episode in the Halyard Education podcast series, discussing protection of healthcare workers during a pandemic and keeping you up to date with the PPE market across the Asia-Pacific region. For more information, visit any of our Asia-Pacific websites at halyardhealth.com. I'm Lisa McKee, and we'll see you next time. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy nor position of any other agency, organisation, employer or company. It's important healthcare customers consider their own standards and not hold these views in perpetuity.